You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Sydney Foreman. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, June 17, 2020. Later in the program, WFHB News correspondent Aaron Comforty reports on the future of the 24-acre Bloomington Hospital site on 2nd Street. He talked to Deputy Mayor Mick Renizen. That's coming up later in our feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, your weekly consumer watchdog segment, Better Beware. But first, your local headlines. Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton said the county has moved into stage four of reopening on June 12th during a COVID-19 press conference. He said many outdoor public spaces are reopened. Uh, About two dozen parks and uh, fitness centers actually are open now. Uh, Our parks department was getting ready for this. So those playgrounds at the parks, uh, about two dozen of those and fitness centers are open today. They've been disinfected and uh, we'll still keep signs encouraging distancing, but those are available. But basketball courts um, are also available and sports leagues are beginning their practices. Um, Of course, with with, uh, stage four, uh, with the exceptions that we have, with the uh, increase in offices and stores and dining capacity, we also see the allowed opening of bars and taverns, movie theaters, et cetera. and uh, that will be of concern uh, as we watch that. Um, and uh, I'm appreciative that we continue to keep the social gatherings at under 100. County Commissioner Julie Thomas said water fountains are not open. She said some park restrooms also remain closed. Monroe County Health Administrator Penny Caudell explained sport regulations. What I do want to really focus on here is non-contact community recreational sports leagues or teams uh, may resume games leagues and tournaments on June 12th. Contact community recreational sports leagues or teams, uh, private or public, may resume games, leagues, and tournaments on June 19th per the governor's order. When hosting or sponsoring venues has, let me back up because I want to say this correctly, they can do that on the 19th when they have submitted to the local health department and posted publicly a COVID response plan that includes precautions in place and being taken to ensure overall protection of competitors, coaches, officials, staff, and spectators. Such plans must be submitted 72 hours in advance of the event and social gathering limits must be followed. Regional Director for Strategic Integration, Mary Ann Valenta, said IU Health Hospital relaxed patient visitor restrictions on June 15th. The revised guidelines do allow for one visitor per patient per day in inpatient areas. Each visitor will be screened and given a mask, which must be worn at all times within the facility. We will continue to not allow in-person visitors for COVID positive or COVID pending patients. Want you to know that we also consider uh, exceptions to these guidelines on a case-by-case basis. Um, In addition, the visitors must be 18 or older. And I will say we've seen an increase of 
parents bringing their children to the facility that are under 18 years old. And so we would request that comply with the over 18 only um, requirement, please. Um, visitors to the outpatient areas, the emergency department, our primary care clinics and other physician offices uh, will we'll evaluate the um, visitors on a case-by-case -case basis, depending upon the need for someone to have a uh, caregiver or uh, liaison with them. And so we don't have just broad guidelines for those. Caudell said state COVID-19 case numbers continue to decline and national numbers remain steady. She said Monroe County has a low positive test percentage. In Indiana, the ICU and ventilator capacity in the state holds steady at good levels, and that's also true in our local region. Testing has been increasing. You've heard us talk about that week after week, and we can see that while we're having some increase in positive cases, that our testing in our community is also increasing. Today, when we look at the dashboard, we can see that we have a total of 185 cases so far, 18 deaths, um, 4,557 4, tests have been done in Monroe County, and that gives us a 4.1% of those have been positive. So the percentage of positives among the tests that's being done continues to uh, be low. And when we look at the state level, the state rate as of today was 11.7% of the tests were positive that were conducted. Caudell said testing sites include the IU Health Bloomington Hospital, Monroe Hospital, CVS, and the OptumServe site. Emergency Management Director Allison Moore said spots are still available for the June 23rd blood drive. She said participants can register at theredcross.org. The Broadening Inclusion Group was disbanded at a Farmers Market Advisory Council meeting on Monday. This came after a controversial statement was released on Facebook from the Broadening Inclusion Group. Many commenters denounced the statement as racist. For more on the story, we turn to WFHB news correspondent Alex Dieterer. A Facebook post made by the Bloomington Farmers Market Broadening Inclusion Group received immediate backlash resulting in a 6-1 vote on Monday by the Farmers Market Advisory Council to disband the group. Just around this time last summer, the Bloomington Farmers Market was bustling with controversy surrounding two of their vendors, Sarah Dye and Doug Mackey, self-proclaimed identitarians. In response to the community's uproar once these ties were publicized, the Broadening Inclusion Group was formed. The committee was intended to help the Bloomington Parks Department diversify the farmers market. Two weeks ago, the same day as the Dunn Meadows Enough is Enough protest against police brutality, the group made a statement on the Bloomington Community Farmers Market Facebook page. The post currently has just under 1,000 critical comments of reply. The post begins with, quote, The broadening inclusion group of the Farmers Market Advisory Council acknowledges the urgent need to voice our sadness, frustration, anger, and disappointment in our country's response to the senseless deaths of black men, black women, and black children, end quote. Much of the criticism to the post is in relation to what they commented on next. Quote, Our hearts break for the black police officers whose lives were lost in the unrest. Their lives matter. Our hearts break for every lost, angry, and aimless young black man and women who commit violent crimes and claim the lives of other black men, black women, and black children. Their lives matter. Last but not least, our hearts break for all the Black-owned businesses and Black livelihoods that have been destroyed by census violence. Their lives matter. End quote. 
Many of the hundreds of people who commented on the post condemned it as racist. The office of the mayor said the statement was not edited or endorsed by the city of Bloomington. The Farmers Market Coalition, a group that the Broadening Inclusion Group mentioned to be in support of, made a comment on the post that they did not support the group's statement. The day after the initial Facebook post was made, six members of the group issued an apology statement. Juliana Crespo, Eduardo Escuerdo, Judy Klein, Bruce McAllister, Jason McCallick, and Amanda Sheridan, all of whom resigned. The Facebook statement reads, quote, The language was offensive and clearly compromised the main issues our community is working to address, which are systemic racism and police brutality against black people. Members of the group were not in complete agreement about every aspect of the statement, and in our haste to post did not fully vet the final statement. It was wrong and inexcusable, end quote. At the Farmers Market Advisory Council meeting Monday, held via Zoom, Director of the Bloomington Parks and Recreation Department, Paula McDevitt, and Market Coordinator Marcia Veldman apologized for allowing the statement to be posted. Veldman then continued to take responsibility for the statement being posted, despite having initial concerns. Nearly 160 community members participated in the two hours of public comment on Monday, many of them calling for McDevitt and Veldman to resign, while others called for dissolving the farmer's market altogether. The next regular meeting for the Board of Park Commissioners will be held June 23rd. For WFHB, I'm Alex Dieterer. Local theater Buskert Chumley announced June 14th in a press release via email that they will be reopening their box office for the hope of future events. The announcement read, quote, The BCT is committed to doing everything we can to keep our patrons and employees safe. We will be implementing the list of precautions below and will continue updating processes to remain healthy, end quote. BCT management made it clear that the box office would be undergoing a set of new precautions and routines, including reduced hours for cleaning. Hours are now Monday through Sunday, 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. Precautions that management asks of customers is to stay at home if people feel sick or show signs of illness, wearing face masks at all times, minimize touching purchases, and one customer in the office at a time. More detailed information was given on the website stating, quote, Online and over-the-phone purchases are still available to patrons who would prefer not to enter the building yet. All tickets will be kept in will call until the night of the show and customers are welcome to have us hold them to reduce exposure, end quote. BCT also expressed their gratitude to citizens of Bloomington for adhering to protocols during this time and continuing to support the local theater, stating, quote, We are all in this together. Our awesome staff will minimize risk during your visit by wearing cloth coverings and cleaning the box office regularly. Please help keep us healthy by wearing a mask when stopping by to pick up tickets, purchase a gift card, make a donation, or check out our BCT merchandise, end quote. For WFHB, I'm Katrine Bruner. County Attorney Jeff Cockrell presented a policy change to the Food and Beverage Tax Advisory Commission to present a business within city limits for a food and beverage tax grant. Cockrell said the commissioner's funding was originally just for businesses outside of city limits. He said the Monroe County History Center provides services to all of the county during their June 16th meeting. This group has already uh, recommended the use of up to $400,000 for the county food and beverage uh, tax uh, grant program. Um, that request was for businesses outside the city limits and entities outside the city limits. Uh, we have gotten a request from a entity within the city limits but has a countywide uh, coverage area. 
And so they, what, their work would affect the county outside the city limits as well as inside the city limits. And the commissioners want to uh, review that request to see if it meets all the yeah. criteria of tourism related enough yeah. and, and those kind of things. But in order to do that, we need this uh, board to recommend that that is a legitimate use of that funding. Commissioner Julie Thomas said the center received funding from an arts grant and personal protective equipment funding. City Controller Jeff Underwood said they did not receive any city loans. Commissioners approved the policy change. Earlier in the year, Taste of Bloomington, the annual local food festival, was canceled in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, Visit Bloomington found a way to keep the spirit of the festival alive despite the lockdown measures currently in place. WFHB correspondent Jake Jacobson has more. This past April, Visit Bloomington announced on their website that this year's Taste of Bloomington Festival would be canceled due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. The Taste of Bloomington is an annual event celebrating the restaurants, breweries, and wineries of Bloomington and Indiana. The one-day festival, which has traditionally kicked off summer festivities downtown, was initially scheduled this Saturday. Last week, Visit Bloomington announced Taste to Go to fill the void left by the cancellation of this year's Taste of Bloomington. Taste to Go is a week-long event encouraging the community to order carryout, buy gift cards, or dine in safely where lobbies are open at their favorite local restaurants. Over 30 restaurants are taking part in Taste to Go festivities, most of which are offering their full menu during Taste to Go. Some restaurants, like Crazy Horse and Nick's English Hut, are offering Taste to Go specials. Taste to Go will be distributing special reusable carryout bags, and the first 500 picked up will contain a gift card to a random local restaurant. Talisha Kopik is the executive director of Visit Bloomington Incorporated and co-director of the Taste of Bloomington. Kopik says that the Taste Committee recognized that they would not be able to host a physical event this year, but still wanted to find a way to host Taste that kept the community safe while supporting Bloomington's restaurant scene. So many of the restaurants, you know, were struggling because everybody had to shut down. But, you know, then whenever it started to look like, you know, carry out was an option, um, it seemed like a good opportunity to just kind of tweak Taste of Bloomington a little bit and call it Taste to Go, you know, encourage the safety protocols from the CDC and local health department, of course, um, but then also, you know, do the carry out uh, with the restaurants. Um, and so with the artwork, um, our designer, Alan Miller, um, Gene Harwood in the past has made kind of the American Gothic man and woman and, you know, each year add a little bit of uh, flair to the artwork um, representative of the, the particular year. So over time, that has kind of come to tell a story. And so this year we added masks to the, uh, the man and woman to say, you know, go out and support the restaurants and do so safely and help protect others uh, and wear a mask. It's summertime and you can tell folks are ready to kind of get out as long as we can do so safely. Uh, we want to try and help support the restaurants as well. We've got such a, a rich, rich restaurant scene and deep restaurant scene in, in Bloomington and uh, this is a crucial time for them. A large annual event like Taste of Bloomington often takes year-round planning to coordinate and host, but Taste to Go has only been an idea since April. 
Kopik talks about the challenges of transforming the scale of an event in less than two months. I will say it was challenging. <laughs> We've got an amazing taste committee and everybody, you know, is focused and, you know, working remotely. Some folks are out of the office and in the office. Different things are going on in everybody's world that you're trying to balance all of that. A lot of folks were busier during all of this than they were in the regular work day, just, you know, learning new systems and, um, but, uh, you know, we've got a really strong partner with Visit Bloomington, Nia Jones is their social media person. And so she's like really stepped up to help us. Their graphics people, they were able to get a website put together pretty quickly. The restaurants, uh, you know, like who's going to be open and what are they going to be doing June 20th? You know, it was just kind of hard to predict a month ago what would be happening this weekend. So Kyle uh, Ellison, you know, pulls together all the restaurants. The health department has been super wonderful with, like, details of what we need to do to make all this work, and we want to follow all of that. Um, so, so it was challenging, um, but, uh, you know, the group uh, really pulled together to, to to make it happen. For Coppic's family, like many families, the restaurants highlighted by Taste to Go and Taste of Bloomington every year are more than just local businesses, which is why it's important to support them, especially now. These restaurants, you know, are a part of families' memories and celebrations. You know, I mean, you, you go out to dinner when you want to celebrate something or you need to talk about something or you want to connect. And so over the years, you've come to get your favorite restaurant, your favorite meal. And so my daughter uh, had a baby uh, just a few weeks ago. So she was like, I really want like meatloaf and macaroni and cheese from Uptown Cafe. So we picked up a nice little to-go bag. They had a beautiful, like, black packaged uh, bag to go. We took it over to her. They set up, like, a little table in their garage and opened their garage door so they would have the distancing and we would have the fresh air. And, and she put a little candlelight on her table. And so we had Uptown Cafe there. And it was probably one of the most special moments <laughs> of this whole thing. Taste to Go will run from this Saturday, June 20th, through next Friday, June 26th. The Taste to Go carryout bags will be available at Visit Bloomington and the Monroe Convention Center starting this Friday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. each day. A full list of participating restaurants can be found on Taste of Bloomington's website at tasteofbloomington.com. For WFHB, I'm Jake Jacobson. Now it's time for your feature reports. The current Bloomington Hospital site on 2nd Street is set to close its doors next year, reopening instead at the new IU Health Center on Bloomington's east side. The mayor's office hosted a virtual town hall yesterday focused on the future of the 24-acre hospital site on 2nd Street. WFHB News correspondent Aaron Comforty joined the town hall meeting and filed this report. The mayor's office frames the hospital relocation as a once-in-a-century opportunity to redesign and reimagine a 24-acre site in the heart of Bloomington. The city uses terms like mixed-use, public space, sustainability, and affordability to describe some of the ideas behind the redevelopment. After a national bidding process, the city hired the international consulting firm Skidmore Owings & Merrill 
headquartered in Chicago, to lead the so-called master planning team for the redevelopment and design. In partnership with the mayor's office, Skidmore Owings and Merrill, or SOM, spent the first hour of the town hall presenting ideas for the site redevelopment. This was based on their studies and input from city government and neighborhood groups. The office of the mayor touts local participation and input as highly effective and at the core of ongoing studies into the redevelopment. I spoke with Deputy Mayor Mick Renheisen via Zoom the morning following the town hall. Here's how he described the meeting and redevelopment process. So one time we had 199 participants on the Zoom call last night and we had another 50 or so on Facebook Live. So, um, you know, 250 people would have filled and then some city halls, council chambers and into the hallways. So we don't normally have meetings that do that. I do think it's a testament to the interest of the community in the project itself. They're willingness to participate and their more than willingness, their uh, direct interest in knowing how much of a game-changing area this can be for our community uh, since it's been a hospital for over 100 years and you don't get a chance to repurpose 24 acres very near your downtown in any city very often. So this is a very unique opportunity for us as a community. The city's optimistic and excited portrayal of the hospital site redevelopment at times contrasted the more concerned tone of community questions. The city's presentation focused on ideas and values, while community members often pushed officials for specifics and commitments on issues like homelessness, housing affordability, and equity. One community member asked, quote, Can the city and developers make a firm commitment to affordable housing? at least 20 to 25 percent of all residential on the site, end quote. Another community member wrote, quote, Here is a chance where policy and spending and planning and development can address our community's long-standing problems of housing and other needs for the most vulnerable in our community. This is our chance. I hope we don't blow it by gentrifying and beautifying while ignoring those pressing needs, end quote. I reached out to a number of residents in the McDole Gardens neighborhood adjacent to the hospital site for comment on the redevelopment and their thoughts on the town hall. I spoke with Carl Pearson, who told me he wrote the comment previously mentioned. He can see the hospital from his front porch, and on his walk, safely distanced from me and wearing a mask, he told me some of his concerns. Well, my biggest concern is that we have a housing crisis in Bloomington. Uh, and we find ourselves in a position where we have a large site set for redevelopment and we can bring policy and development together at one time in this rare opportunity to address low-income housing needs. So I am concerned that the development will benefit homeowners and other privileged members of the community and leave out those who need housing. While questions about the issue of low-income housing were some of the most commonly asked at the town hall, Deputy Mayor Renheisen consistently used a different term, workforce housing. I asked the Deputy Mayor about the city's approach to affordable housing, and this is what he said. Our entire city staff are 
you know, focused on trying to find ways to increase the housing stock in Bloomington and increase it for those uh, price points that many people simply can't afford the existing real estate market. So, you know, for the most part in the last five years, we've been able to slightly move, and, and I say slightly, but it's in the hundreds now of new affordable units. Most of those have been in the rental category. We are now shifting or trying to shift more towards what can we do for home ownership that's affordable. So targeting this area and remembering that two years ago, we did a Urban Land Institute visioning plan for this. And again, affordable housing, workforce housing came up. I think we're targeting somewhere in the, the mayor used it last night, 0% to 120% AMI, uh, average median income of the area as what can someone in that range, price range afford. And that, that tends to fall in the under $250,000 range. So you know, we'll be looking for some housing product that might be smaller in footprint that would fall in that category uh, that, that people could afford that have, maybe it's their, their starter home or their first home or they're a young professional, uh, or, or maybe it's a retiree. So it's the spectrum of things that will need to fit into that affordable slash workforce component. Again, the deputy mayor emphasized that through community outreach, the city would be able to address community concerns. Carl Pearson, on the other hand, noted that the city's community outreach overly emphasized the role of neighborhood associations. That means they're going to consult with homeowners, and homeowners have a particular view um, about what should happen, primarily because many of them are interested in the value of their homes. But in order to address the needs of our community, we need to put the value of our homes aside for a moment and think about what's best for Bloomington in general. One of the primary issues facing U.S. housing policy is the disparity between black and white home ownership. According to the Housing Finance Policy Center's 2019 data, the gap between black and white home ownership is around 30 percent. In light of the recent national protests against systemic racism, I asked Deputy Mayor Renheisen if the mayor's administration was considering racial equity in the redevelopment of the hospital site. It is a fact that there have been systemic racist practices in our world for a long time, uh, and, and we just have to address it head on and admit that it's happened and is happening and it's not something that is going to go away without a concentrated effort. It's a fact that African-American homeownership is well below uh, folks that are white or any, almost any other race. And that's a, that's a barrier to, um, to the success and future long-term earnings of anyone. Most, most of the value that any individual or family has is, is in their home. That's sort of a step into financial independence for, for families. And so uh, it is, appropriate for us to be thinking through and working in this development for a way to make sure that we are accommodating those. This is part of the affordable slash workforce housing because a disproportionate part of our society, a disproportionate part of Bloomington are going to be people that aren't able to afford their homes now. And many of those people happen to be African-Americans, just not just in Bloomington, but in other parts of the country. This is the first report in a series about the hospital site redevelopment, and we will be reaching out to many more community members in the coming weeks and months for comment on relevant social 
and environmental issues regarding the redevelopment. For WFHB, I'm Aaron Comforti. Now it's time for your weekly consumer watchdog program, Better Beware, hosted and produced by Richard Fish. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. How are you doing during this pandemic? Are you working from home or are you not working? If you or someone you know has filed for unemployment insurance benefits, watch out. There have been massive unemployment fraud schemes hitting states literally from coast to coast. The state of Washington has admitted to paying out hundreds of millions of dollars in fake claims. When claim filings in Washington shot up from 6000 a week to 800000 a week, and state government departments were working from home or keeping social distance in the office, they got overwhelmed. Florida, North Carolina, Massachusetts, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wyoming have been hit hard, and now the Indiana Department of Workforce Development has issued a statewide alert. In past years, massive data breaches from companies like Equifax, Target, Yahoo, and more have exposed billions of people's personal data. Some estimates say that every American has had their personal data stolen at least three times. This stuff ends up being traded and sold on the dark web, of course, and the fraudsters from all over the world are using it to file fake unemployment insurance claims and steal the payments from legitimate claims. Some people whose jobs haven't been affected will be confronted by their boss, who asks if they've quit because the company got a letter from the State Unemployment Bureau saying they've applied for benefits. But sometimes the scammers know so much about a person and the company they work for that they can fake a letter or email from that company confirming the application. In other cases, people who have honestly and properly applied for unemployment benefits get sucked into fake websites, perhaps by getting an email that looks like it came from the state with a link to click, and if they log in there, the crooks can then use that information to log into the real unemployment website and change the bank account number the money is being direct deposited in or intercept the payments in other ways. So if you apply for unemployment and the checks don't start coming right away, there are two main reasons. One, the crooks have hijacked your account with the state, perhaps well before you applied. Or two, the state has slowed the whole process down to require more and more verification. A lot of legitimate recipients in Washington had their checks stopped while the state checked them out in detail and had to get by as best they could for weeks. If you or your workplace get a letter or email from the unemployment people when you haven't been in touch with them or filed a claim, watch out and report it. When you go to the unemployment insurance website, make sure it's the real one. Type the address in yourself. Don't click links. It's nasty out there. Be careful. Stay safe. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. 
Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Alex Dieterer, Jake Jacobson, Katrine Bruner, Cade Young, and Sydney Foreman in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our features were produced by Aaron Comforty and Richard Fish. Our engineer is Cade Young. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Our executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent local news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast, as well as all other WFHB news programming online at WFHB.org. You too can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at WFHB.org. Stay tuned for Cool Solutions. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 